hey y'all, you tired of church teaching that just ain't right and it's kind of contrary to all God's word and such? Well, you need to know how to refute it. This here channel will help you out. We got answers. Welcome to Contending for Christ Apologetics, where old Danny boy seeks to equip you with some tools that you can go out and fight that good fight and really develop that there Christian faith. Now get after it, y'all. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Contending for Christ Apologetics. Today, we're going to be looking at five common arguments for God's existence. Five common arguments. These arguments aren't something that some modern philosopher or apologist has put together. These arguments have been around for hundreds of years and even almost a thousand years. And these arguments are so solid that they have yet to be fully refuted. Now, different people might argue a premise here or there. But when you're looking at it from a logical argument standpoint structure, these are very logical and coherent arguments that can be used to reveal the necessity of God. Now, I must admit right up front that these arguments don't necessarily argue for the necessity of the Christian God, but simply the necessity of a God. So I want to put that right out there. What we do with these arguments is we reveal the necessity of God. And then from there, we can start looking at all the gods, if you will, quote unquote, gods, little G's that are out there in the world. And which religion actually has the truthfulness of scripture, the truthfulness of religion, the truthfulness of God by looking at the claims of the messiahs or the God or the prophets by looking at the claims of the holy books, the writings, the scriptures, whatever the case is, and then comparing it to what we know from history and evidence and whether it's internally coherent or not. So again, five arguments for God's existence simply points to the fact of the necessity of a being greater than ourselves that put all this we see into motion. Without further ado, let me go ahead and sort of jump right into it. Understand that these arguments are built upon premises and conclusions. Your conclusion is going to be based on what you're arguing. So we're arguing that God exists. So that's the, that's the conclusion. Now, the premises are supporting that conclusion. They're evidences. They're arguments to once you tie one and two together, they will point to that conclusion. And so we have five arguments with different premises and conclusions, the conclusion that God exists, that we're going to look at. And with each of these, you may find a naturalist or an atheist that will uh, try to argue one of the premises. And that's okay. What we're doing is we're looking at the logical coherency of this particular argument and showing that the premises do draw a logical uh, route to the actual conclusion itself. So let me jump right into it. <clears throat> These are based on order of what I would say is probably the least powerful to the most powerful argument for God's existence. So again, we're going to start with whatever I believe is the least strongest or the weakest and then ending with the strongest. And the first one's going to be what's called the epistemological argument. Epistemological based on epistemology or the study of knowledge and where knowledge and reason is acquired. The epistemological argument stems from many people believe back St. Anselm who was a philosopher in the 11th century AD. There are three premises and then you have your conclusion. The first premise seeks to say that there are reasons to believe religious experiences point to and validate spiritual realities that transcend naturalism. 
Let me say it again. There are reasons to believe religious experiences point to and validate spiritual realities that transcend our outside of naturalism. For example, near-death uh, near experiences, out-of-body experiences, miracles, etc. So that's the first premise, because what we're trying to do is argue the existence of God through knowledge. The second premise is naturalism does not provide a means for spiritual realities. So this premise means that naturalism does not does not look at the supernatural for explanation. It dismisses the supernatural. Naturalism only looks in the natural world, materialism, things like that. And so if there are reasons to believe religious experiences point to spiritual realities, naturalism doesn't provide a means for those spiritual realities. A belief in deism, third premise, deism or theism does provide the means for spiritual realities. Therefore, deism or theism must be true. For example, naturalism cannot explain miraculous healings. I know an individual from a church many years ago who literally had cancer. Doctors had it documented. They seen the images. They ended up telling the individual, you have this type of cancer. We went and prayed for the individual. They went back, and I tell you, that cancer was no longer to be found. Nowhere to be found. And this isn't just a one isolated incident. There are many incidents like this throughout the world. You can find out naturalism cannot explain miraculous healings. Naturalism cannot explain the visions that Middle Easterns are having of Jesus and turning a life of Islam into a life of Christianity. Naturalism cannot explain the life-altering transformations that people go through once they become a follower of Christ, and that moral transformation that occurs with the new seed inside of the body. Behold, all things have become new, Paul says when he's writing to the Corinthians. And so with the epistemological argument, we're seeking to see God through how we reason, have knowledge, and gain understanding. Like I said, there's reason to believe religious experiences point to and validate spiritual realities. Naturalism doesn't provide a means for spirituality. Deism or theism does provide that means. Therefore, deism or theism must be true. Those premises follow logically and they end with that conclusion in a logical manner. St. Anselm also created uh, this second argument. It's called the ontological argument. Ontology dealing with the study of being. And Anselm here again, 11th century philosopher, was arguing the existence of God through being, of just existence. Basically, this argument sort of speaks that a being than which no greater being can be conceived. For instance, there's two premises and a conclusion. This one is pretty simple to understand and follow. Premise one, the existence of something is possible. The existence of something is possible. If you have a thought, you could possibly put it together. Premise two, to exist is greater than not to exist. To exist is greater than not to exist. To exist in your mind is not greater than to exist in reality. Therefore, since it is possible God exists, God must exist because he has to be a being greater than no other being can be uh, imagined. Uh, it's, it's commonly referred to as a maximally great being. 
For instance, imagine a table. So you're thinking of a table. I know some of you are carpenters out there and you can think of many different tables, blueprints, plans in your mind, right? So imagine a table. Is that table greater in your mind or is that table greater once it's built and you can use it? You see, to exist is greater than to simply be thought of or simply be possible. And so Anselm's ontological argument seeks to say that the existence of something is possible and to exist is greater than not to exist. Therefore, if it is possible God exists, God must exist. It's like that saying, it's the thought that counts, right? Well, no, because if I keep missing birthdays and anniversaries, I say, well, I thought about it. I thought about getting you something, but I don't actually get it. Then I'm a pretty poor individual. Not poor in poor sense, but poor in like a bad, bad person. I'm just constantly ignoring the physical reality of buying a gift, whatever the case is. And I'm only thinking of doing it. To exist is greater than not to exist. So those are the two from Anselm from the 11th century. Now, those two are very strong. Uh, there's one or two premises that can be argued against. But when you put all these together, they, f they actually build a very solid case for Christianity, for God's existence, I should say. The cosmological argument is the third one. And this one is uh, really founded by Thomas Aquinas. But also there was a Muslim that came up with this argument as well that talks, I think his name was uh, Ghazali. But basically, it argues the existence of God through causality, through causality and necessity. So Aquinas was a Catholic priest in the 13th century, and this is commonly referred to as the uncaused first cause or the law of causality, and it has two premises and one conclusion. Very easy to remember. Premise one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. There's a reason for its existence. The universe began to exist. Therefore, conclusion, the universe has a cause. All right, so let's look at this for a minute. The universe began to exist. Now, this isn't something that a naturalist would argue because the steady state theory is no longer really widely accepted by scientists or scholars or anything. But now it's really understood that the universe actually has a beginning now, most, point, and most people can backtrack this beginning from the expansion rate of the universe all the way back to singularity, but they have no idea what caused that bang. They have no idea what caused that singularity to have this rapid expansion. We would say God. They would say bubble universe, a white hole, oscillating universe, big bang, big crunch type thing. And so it is commonly accepted that the universe began to exist. And therefore, the universe has to have a cause. For example, this podcast episode that you're listening to right now exists, but it only exists because I thought of it and I am articulating these words through this episode. And you have the ability or you had the ability to download this episode or listen to it, stream it, whatever the case is, and actually listen to it. So it's the same thing. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. And if the universe began to exist, the universe has a cause. And now we got to figure out what is that cause? Who is that cause? And a theist would argue that cause for everything's existence is God. Now, the naturalist will argue a natural reason, but the problem that they're going to have is the fact of they have to go outside the natural world to find that cause. For instance, if you have everything 
in the known universe to condense to a fine point of what they call singularity, then you have nothing that is outside the universe acting upon it to cause it to expand. And therefore, they have to look outside the natural world anyways to have this bang, this pop, this momentum to cause the expansion rate. We see God. They see a multiverse. They see a parallel dimension. They see whatever the case is but God. But the cosmological argument, uncaused first cause, law of causality, everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. The fourth one. The fourth one's by an individual by the name of Immanuel Kant. He was a German philosopher in the 18th century. In this argument, the moral argument seeks to argue the necessity of God seen through ethics or morality. So there's two premises and one conclusion. Premise one. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Premise two. Objective moral values do exist. Therefore, conclusion, God must exist. The argument, if God does not exist, objective morals don't exist. But we see objective morality throughout the universe. Well, throughout the earth, I should say, throughout mankind. For instance, is it always wrong to torture innocent babies for fun? I would argue almost every single one of us would say, yes, that is wrong. That is always wrong. You don't torture innocent babies for fun. That is sadistic. That is nasty. You just don't do it. I don't care what tribe, what country, wherever you are, it's always wrong. You see, objective morality seeks to argue that aside from personal opinion or aside from personal belief or experience, there are certain things that are just true. And when we're talking about objective morality, we're talking about the difference between right and the difference between wrong. Now, we could get into the argue as far as, would you steal a loaf of bread for your family if you were starving and you didn't have any money? And they were dying. We could get into what I would call situational ethics, but that still doesn't argue the origins of the fact of stealing is wrong. You ask anybody, the moral duty obligation is always something that we have intrinsic of us, a duty to save life. Why? Because we value life. If we see somebody in need, we have a duty, an intrinsic obligation to try to help and save. So objective moral values exist. And it doesn't matter if it's 50, 500,000. It doesn't matter. If there is just one objective moral value that exists, then we need to find the foundation of that one objective moral value. But the thing is, we see objective morality in many areas, whether it's aspects of love or aspects of respect or aspects of torture, things like that. Murder, big difference between murder and killing. And so if God doesn't exist, objective moral values don't exist, and we can do whatever we want. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. But we do see that there is at least one objective moral value that does exist. And if there is one objective moral value that exists, then we need to determine from where does this one objective moral value stem from? Where does it come? Where does it spring up? And naturalism cannot explain any of these objective morality, objective moral values and where they come from. Only a theist can argue that this comes from a god, from an intelligent being who designed the universe, and due to the fact of the sovereign control and creation, 
identifies the rules and what's moral and what's not, plus part of his character and things like that. So the moral argument. You don't have to have five million objective uh, moral laws. You just have to find one. You find one, and there's no explanation that naturalism can provide as far as where that stems from. Because if they argue it's whatever's best for the community, communities always change. If it's whatever's best for the masses, well, masses and majorities always change. In the past, conservatism was always the majority. Now we're getting to the liberal side always being the majority. Now it's even the fact that the minority has the greater voice than the majority. And so those aren't even arguments from a naturalist or a community behavioral worldview or explanation as far as objective moral laws. And so that's the fourth one. The fifth one, the teleological argument by a man by the name of William Paley. Teleological, simply arguing the existence of God seen through design. Seen through design. For instance, if the universe has evidence of a design, first premise, then it has to have a designer. Premise two, the universe does have evidence of design. Conclusion, therefore the universe has a designer. So let's look at these premises. If the universe has evidence of a design, it must have a designer. That makes sense to us because if you're walking along the beach and you see a watch on the on the sand in the sand, you're not going to automatically assume that through millions of years of evolution that watch just came to be. You're going to assume the watch had a watchmaker. Now you have no idea who made that watch, but the fact that that watch is there tells you there has to be a watchmaker. And if you really cared or are very concerned, you will try to find out who made that watch. Whether you flip it over, look at the back of the watch face and see if there's a, a mark, a stamp, whatever the case is. Or you ask around, ask people, hey, do you know who left this watch? Finding a watch on the beach is evidence that there is a watch maker. The universe does in fact show evidence of design. Whether you look into what's called the anthropic principle, the fine-tuning argument, the axis of the actual Earth itself, the distance of the moon from the Earth and the sun, the Goldilocks zone, which is talking about the perfect habitable distance uh, the planet is from the sun to have and sustain life. You look at the cyclic cycle of the hydraulic cycle. You could look at uh, the breathing cycle where we breathe in uh, oxygen, we breathe out carbon dioxide. Guess what plants breathe in? Plants breathe in carbon dioxide and they push out oxygen. And so you see this cycle as well. And so there's many evidences that this universe and this planet was designed. And if there is evidence of design, there's evidence of a designer. You would never walk around or look into an art gallery and look at a painting that you can, you know, see and clearly make out what it is. Picture of a dog, a painting of a dog. I have a painting of my dog over here that my wife made for me. You would never argue that that painting just came to be spontaneous generation. You would argue that that painting, because it's a picture of a dog, had somebody that thought about the dog in their mind and painted the dog on the canvas, and that is how it got to be. A painting is ordered and designed, so you would never argue that that painting didn't have a designer or a painter. You would argue it would. Same thing with automobiles. The cars, the mechanics of it, the necessity of gas and the combustion of the engine and everything else. There's a design there. You wouldn't argue that that just happened. You would argue that that was designed, that was thought of, that was purposed, and that was created. 
The same thing is the case with the universe and with this earth and with you and I and ourselves and our bodies and everything. We have evidence of design and therefore we have evidence of a designer. Now we just need to seek the designer. So these are the five common arguments for God's existence. Uh, hopefully I articulated them kind of okay. But again, these five arguments, number one, on their own, they're not necessarily as strong as if they're all together combined. From the weakest to the strongest, you have epistemological, which is the evidence of God through knowledge and experience. Ontological, which is evidence of God through being and being a maximally great being. The fact that there's no greater being that can be conceived or built upon. That God's attributes are perfect. Then you have the cosmological argument that everything that begins to exist has a cause, and we see the universe's cause. Then you have the moral argument with objective morals. Even if you just find one or five million, they each determine, they each demand a foundation on why that, that law is transcendent. Transcendent from time, location, culture, whatever. And then you have the teleological argument, which is the argument from design. That again, if you find a watch on the beach, you're going to automatically assume the watch had a watchmaker. And if you care enough, you're going to look for whoever designed that watch or ask people. The same thing with the universe. The universe does have evidence of design. We would do well to ask, who is this designer? Again, these don't point to necessarily the Christian God or Jehovah. These just point to the rationality of God. The fact that we need God's existence to make any logical sense in the world today. And these arguments show that. And finally, we take these arguments to show the evidence of God, and then from there, start drawing lines to the Christian God on how Christianity is the most trustworthy, the most verifiable religion out there that's logically coherent, that's internally coherent, and that one of the strongest evidences and arguments for the Christian God is the res resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we'll talk about in another podcast episode. So, five arguments for God. I hope you liked it. If you do like it, hit me a comment on, uh, on the podcast channel, whatever the case is. Go ahead, like, subscribe, uh, follow the actual podcast itself. Don't forget to go ahead and just share this podcast with others. And if you have any ideas on future episodes or anything like that, feel free to email me, c4capologetics at gmail.com. We also have a web at c4capologetics.weebly.com as well, so go check us out. So until next time, I thank you for checking it out. God bless. Mm -hmm.